This program is brought to you by the Practicing Law Institute, a nonprofit learning organization dedicated to keeping attorneys and professionals at the forefront of knowledge and expertise. Imagine you wake up tomorrow to find that you are being sued for tens of thousands of dollars to pay someone else's debt, a debt you had no part in creating and did not know existed. If you lose the case, they can force you to sell your house. Sounds like a bad dream, doesn't it? I had young children at home, and I had no income virtually, and it turned into this Byzantine nightmare that had no bearing on reality. A nightmare with no bearing on reality. This is the experience of many people with legal problems. A case that looks simple to a lawyer becomes complicated for people who don't know how courts and the law actually work. And for folks who are already struggling financially, it quickly becomes totally overwhelming. Unless they can connect with a pro bono lawyer. Welcome to Pursuing Justice, The Pro Bono Files, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute, in which lawyers and clients talk candidly about their pro bono experiences. I'm your host, Alicia Aiken, and for 15 years, I was a legal services attorney in Chicago. Now, I'm a principal at Danu Center for Strategic Advocacy, a national organization supporting advocates and mission-based organizations in their own pursuit of social justice. I'm also a faculty fellow at PLI, where I get to work on special projects like this podcast. This story begins in 2010, when Dorothy thought she had put a difficult divorce behind her. Instead, she was dragged into a lawsuit originally filed against her ex-husband. Here, Dorothy tells us about her life in Chicago and how she first learned of the lawsuit. And you have a house in Chicago? Yes, I do. I've lived here longer than I've lived anywhere else. So even though I'm from somewhere else, I consider myself a Chicagoan. It's where your roots are. It's where my children were born. How many kids do you have? I have three. And so the house you still have Mm -hmm. is the place where you raised your kids. Yes, indeed. It's the only house they knew. It was also the house that was attached to a lawsuit post-divorce decree. So you and your husband had already gotten a divorce. Oh, yes. We'd been divorced for some time. And in the divorce, did you get the house? Yes, I did. And it was all clearly stated in the decree. And then you get, what, served with a lawsuit? It was attached to the lawsuit post-decree, not only post-decree, but several years after he'd been served. And then I got the lawyer at the time, added me into the lawsuit. And the most ironic thing is he attempted to use the divorce decree or agreement between my ex-husband and I as evidence of collusion to defraud him. This guy tried to get the house away from me because it was the only asset that he could discern anywhere in the background. I asked LAF for help because I was, I was astonished that someone could attach a lawsuit to me post-divorce. LAF is the free legal services program for Chicago and its surrounding suburbs, and also the one that I worked at for 15 years. Dorothy went to LAF for help when she was accused of defrauding her ex-husband's creditors solely because she took the house in a run-of-the-mill divorce settlement. LAF helps people with all kinds of legal problems, including divorces and debt collection cases. LAF is also one of the biggest legal services programs in the country. 
with a staff of more than 80 lawyers. But those 80 lawyers are supposed to help over a million people who qualify for free legal help. To meet that overwhelming demand for legal help, LAF regularly relies on volunteer pro bono lawyers. And one of the attorneys who has contributed his time and expertise pro bono is Howard Goffin. Now, Howard had previously represented Dorothy in a different case. And because I used to supervise Howard's pro bono work, I remembered something about his second case with Dorothy. The other case, which was much more disturbing, was brought by what we call a debt buyer. Somebody who buys the debt from the original creditor and buys it for pennies on the dollar and then tries to collect from the debtor the full amount that is owed. The concept of a debt buyer is central to this story. To understand how debt buying works, I talked with Alan Allop, the former director of LAF's Consumer Practice Group, who also worked with Howard Goffin on Dorothy's case. I asked Alan to explain for us how debt buyers work. What they are are huge nationwide companies that buy portfolios of debts. They may talk to um, a finance company and contract to buy 300,000 bad debts. The debt buyer company will pay as little as 0.2 cents on the dollar for these 300,000 debts. So the debt buyer companies will accumulate hundreds of thousands, if not millions of debts for which they pay very, very little. And then, unfortunately, they turn them over to their nationwide collection system and their collectors, I think the proper term to use for their collection folks is aggressive, very, very aggressive. But the bottom line is the debt buyer company is, even though they're as aggressive as they are, In court, they're paper tigers. They're paper tigers because when they buy that debt, they are not getting a whole lot from the finance company or from the original creditor. They're getting a piece of paper, one piece of paper that says the name of the debtor, the debtor's last known address, the social security and other identifying, some other identifying information about the debtor. Hopefully, sometimes that's even missing. And the final amount that was due, the uh, amount that the original creditor says was the outstanding balance. So when the case ends up in court, it's almost impossible for the debt buyer, the plaintiff debt buyer in a collection action, to prove what is due and owing, except in a default situation. Did you hear that? Debt buyers usually can't prove their case at trial so they rely on default judgments. Of course, it was just Dorothy's luck that her ex-husband had ignored the lawsuit, so the debt buyer did get a default judgment. When Dorothy got dragged into the case, she didn't think she could challenge whether the judgment of nearly $30,000 was actually owed. All she could do was challenge the idea that she should use her house to pay that judgment. It may seem like it should be easy to prove that a garden-variety property division in a routine divorce was not a plot to cheat creditors. Could Dorothy do this on her own? I asked Alan Allop about going to collection court without a lawyer. Let's say somebody does go down to court without a lawyer, and they're not prepared to be their own lawyer. What happens Uh, when they get there? Well, they're walking into the lion's den. If there is an imbalance of power, shall we say, with a lawyer on one side and an unrepresented uh, pro se individual on the other side, what often happens is even if the individual has a defense, 
They may try to articulate it to the lawyer, but more often the lawyer is able to convince them to some sort of payment schedule. And even if it's a case where I think the individual should not be liable for any amount, uh, oftentimes those folks will end up uh, agreeing to pay 80 or 90 percent of the debt over a period of time. And there's the problem. It isn't so much that a defendant in Dorothy's position cannot win on the legal merits, as much as it's easy to be run over by even the simple parts of the adversarial legal system before you even get to the merits question. And Dorothy's case wasn't actually simple. The lawyer on the other side was very, very tenacious. I have to admit that he was very inventive. What do you mean? Well, because, you know, he brought in the husband. He found out that uh, they were divorced. He asked the husband for a copy of the divorce decree and the settlement agreement. And within that, he saw that she had title to a house that they had jointly owned, that in the divorce agreement, he deeded to her as a part of the agreement. The other lawyer felt that by deeding the property to Dorothy, that he had done this in anticipation of this large credit card bill. And so you can imagine the shock when she was sued by an individual, by a debt buyer company, over a debt that she never entered into, a debt that she had no knowledge of. I was like, oh, dear God in heaven. And I went back to LAF and I presented it to, to Howard. He went, oh, my God, look at this. And he couldn't believe it. Frankly, he couldn't believe it. Who are these lawyers who took on Dorothy's debt buyer case? We'll get to know Howard in a minute, but it is important to understand that Howard was able to represent Dorothy well because of the help he got from Alan, the career legal services lawyer. Alan shared with me his experiences working full-time with clients living in poverty. I practiced law for 43 years uh, in Florida and Chicago, all of it with two legal aid organizations, one in Jacksonville, Florida, and one in Chicago. And what kind of cases did you focus on? For a while, I was doing consumer class actions, primarily against used car dealers and banks and loan companies and others engaged in a pattern of fraudulent conduct. And I also represented defendants who were being sued, usually in a variety of collection matters. I realized there was a way, there was an approach for every case an approach that would work. There was always a method, a methodology that would get us pretty much to where we wanted to go so that the client could walk out of there without having to um, have less food at the end of the month than they ordinarily might. Now, unlike Alan, Howard Goffin's work with LAF in Chicago started much later in life, after a long legal career trying personal injury cases. Although he and his wife had always been devoted to using their time to help people who needed it the most. I was the managing of attorney of an in-house legal staff of 12 lawyers for an insurance company that represented most of the taxi cabs in the city of Chicago and suburbs. But I found time. We participated in Jesse Jackson's Operation Push, now known as the Rainbow Coalition. We were involved with Cesar Chavez in um, picketing for grapes and lettuce. I had the um, 
extreme honor to meet Cesar Chavez and sit in on a meeting with him. If that's what you believed in, that's what you did, and you've carved time out. I left the active practice of law at the end of 2004. I have been with LAF for a little over 12 years. I have done everything from uh, their children and family group, their public benefits group, consumer practice, even a little bit of employee benefits. As you can tell, Howard's commitment to social justice runs deep. Representing African-American homeowners facing discrimination in the real estate market and picketing grocery stores during Chicago winters in support of California farm workers. So when he retired from a full-time law practice at 70, it's not particularly surprising that he started volunteering at LAF three days a week. But it is unusual that he kept up the pro bono volunteering for more than 12 years. Howard's dedication to service and justice is inspiring. He reminds me of the very best that our profession can be. I think LAF is what my legacy, I would like it to be. The work that I've done for LAF has been important. And unfortunately, with a lot of funding cuts, LAF depends on on a lot of volunteer lawyers and summer law students. And so I feel that I'm filling a gap that would not be filled if I and other volunteer lawyers would not be there. Dorothy certainly benefited from Howard's dedication and legal skill. But unlike a lot of defendants in collection court, Dorothy also knew how to take steps that would help her lawyers out. She was a sharp lady. By the time she had come to us, she had done a lot of research on the issue. She had looked up with recorder of deeds to see that, in fact, the deed with her husband and issued to her had been recorded. She had done some research as to the value of the home. She had actually prepared an answer to the citation to discover assets, which she had filed and which, you know, from a non-lawyer standpoint, looked to be a pretty good response. I knew enough to get up on my hind legs and fight. I knew enough to answer the suit, Mm -hmm. but I also knew enough that I was in way deeper than I, I could manage. What made it too much to manage alone? To truly understand the case, I took a field trip to the Chicago courthouse and read the file. After some months of research, Howard and Alan realized that the best way to win for Dorothy was on the facts. And the fact was that there was no evidence that Dorothy or her husband had actually committed fraud in their settlement. So Howard obtained affidavits from everyone. Dorothy, her ex-husband, even their divorce lawyers. The affidavits showed the arm's-length negotiation between husband and wife. Howard's motion for summary judgment explained that there was no dispute over the facts. The facts showed no fraud, and no fraud meant no lien could be put on Dorothy's house. There was just one problem. The other lawyer would not give up. And although he filed the response, when the other lawyer argued the case before the judge, the judge was totally unimpressed. But we finally showed to the judge why the the case and his claim had absolutely no merit. And we were successful. And then how did you feel when you won? I felt like she felt. She was totally elated.
okay, so having a lawyer makes a difference in a collection case. That's not surprising. There is just no way Dorothy could have made that summary judgment argument and collected those affidavits on her own. But you might fairly be asking, if her house and a $30,000 judgment were at stake, why didn't she just hire a lawyer? Even if the lawyer costs money, it's less than the amount at stake. Many of us have spent some money to protect our assets sometimes, right? Why not ask Dorothy to do the same? Alan explains why people don't just hire a lawyer when defending a debt collection case. Many lawyers, uh, knowledgeable consumer lawyers out there, private lawyers, and the problem is with consumer cases in particular, those folks oftentimes don't have a retainer. They don't have the money to pay the private attorney. They're going to need to go to legal aid if they're aware that legal aid exists. Most of them are either unaware or not aware that legal aid can ma make the difference between winning and losing. As Howard observed about Dorothy's case, a lack of legal counsel can be devastating. Had this happened to her, and she had no counsel because she really was earning a minimum wage at that point, she would have never been able to afford a lawyer and would have never been able to proceed herself against this lawyer, I feel, with any success. But if you'd had to do it completely alone, what do you think would have happened? I would have been screwed. Absolutely. It isn't at all unusual for people without lawyers to lose in collection court even though they had a defense to the debt. Dorothy's case helps illustrate why pro bono lawyers and legal services programs matter so much in the area of consumer debt. And Allen believes that most people would defeat the debt lawyers if they only had a lawyer of their own. Debtors do not believe there is any defense. They're unaware of all the defenses that exist. And they're just essentially feeling hopeless about the situation. The default judgments are then entered and at that point, they're subject to levies by the court and other post-judgment collection measures. But if a lawyer is involved, or if a, a consumer who is educated in the nature of these debts is involved, they can oftentimes, not always, but most of the time, they can win the lawsuit simply because the plaintiff debt-buying company cannot meet its burden of proof. But... Most people don't realize that. When they get served with those papers, they don't realize that the debt-buying company is a paper tiger. So the default judgment is entered. The problem in today's world is that it often takes professional help to assert your defenses. Unfortunately, today, most folks aren't getting that help. There's a bunch of frightened people up there who have no idea what their rights are and what they must do. There's no debtor's prison. But there is, in fact, a debtor's punitive system. As lawyers, we might object to Dorothy calling the system punitive. We tell her that the adversarial system, where aggressive lawyers get creative with their legal theories, is a fair system. But isn't the fair part premised on having zealous lawyers on both sides? How legitimate is the process if people with defenses can't get those defenses heard and they can't pay a lawyer to raise defenses for them? That is why we have free lawyers in this country, nonprofit legal services lawyers like Alan Allop, helping people in every county in the United States. But there are not enough of them. 
Remember, LAF has about 80 lawyers with 1 million people eligible for services. And that's the big city. In rural counties, there might be three lawyers covering four counties with lots of people living in poverty scattered all over. The legal aid lawyers scramble to do as much as they can for as many as they can. I had colleagues carry 90 cases at once trying to help everyone they met. But even then, most people with a consumer debt defense have to go it alone. I saw that there were clients who really didn't know what to do. They really were without any sense of what was going to happen or what could happen to them. And unfortunately, a lot of the opposing attorneys took advantage of this. As lawyers, we've staked our professional lives and built our careers on the legitimacy of the legal system. But how do we know it's even true? I'll ask again, how legitimate is it? if people with defenses can't get them heard when they are self-represented. And there is no money to hire a lawyer. One reason we do pro bono work is to make absolutely certain that we can say, yes, the courts are fair. I was there, and I made sure of it. Howard can certainly say that. He's still out there in his 80s, still doing pro bono, still doing his part to make sure the legal system is fair. What do you think drives you to be socially active? There is a a saying in the Jewish religion, tekina olam, which means, in effect, to repair the world. It's been really a pleasure helping people. For Howard, pro bono work is part of his fundamental commitment to caring about his community. And his community is pretty grateful to have him around. If you're still talking to Howard, tell him he is my hero. I'm so thankful that we intersected So lucky to have met you. Thanks for listening to Pursuing Justice, The Pro Bono Files, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. This production is dedicated to the pro bono and public interest lawyers helping those with limited access to justice. We also thank our production team, including Daniel Pinitz, Janet Siegel, J.C. Kinneman, and Robert Gennerke, as well as our host, Alicia Aiken. PLI is a nonprofit provider of authoritative legal training and continuing education. Since its founding more than 80 years ago, PLI has served the pro bono and public interest community. Lawyers working to expand access to justice can apply for complimentary access to attend PLI events or to watch any one of the 2,500 on-demand programs available on pli.edu. For more information about PLI's wide-ranging curriculum, visit pli.edu slash pro bono.